Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hi, Don. Hey, y'all. I'm Sam. Sam, welcome back. Well, thank you. It feels like it's been forever since I've seen you. Yeah, well, we see each other all the time well, in meetings. Yeah. It was every, yesterday. Everywhere still, around. You know. um, that's a really nice shirt you're wearing there, Don. Thank you. It's uh, Looks like you got it out of one of those uh, it has know, l- little claw aliens. games. At, uh, oh, that's what it is. The little aliens in the claw game at the, the arcade type thing. It's like arcade arcade game they're they're smiling happy smiley aliens with three eyes and they're all have big they're all happy joyous and free sam yeah, unlike they, they, they your look like shirt, they have no sense whatsoever you now you're wearing a shirt with a <laughs> the cutest little baby unicorn on it and it says I will cut you. <laughs> well it's important to note that he's got a knife taped to his horn too. I detect a little resentment in that unicorn. Oh, no, no. He's just a badass. <laughs> oh, the little baby unicorn. Is he angry? Is he angry? Is I he cut angry? you. Ow! He cut me. That little unicorn. Ooh, thank you, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for crying out. <laughs> We're going to move on to our guest. I think we Sam. should. <laughs> Introduce yourself. Hey there, I'm Vicky. Hey, hey Vicky. Vicky. Aren't you glad you came? I am. Y'all are hilarious. <laughs> Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club. When'd you get sober? I got sober March 10th, 2005. All right. And w- so when you came to AA, what was going on that, with you that? made it seem like a good idea to go to an AA meeting, of all things. I know, right? Um, well, I was unemployed. First started out unemployed, then I became unemployable. And I was, um, when I was awake, I was drinking, round the clock. So I would drink, uh, pass out, come to, whether it was 30 minutes or three hours later, have the shakes so bad that I would have to drink, but I'd been drinking for so long, when I drank, I would throw it up. So I would drink, throw up, drink, throw up until I could get the shakes to stop. And then I could drink like I wanted to. Wow. Morning drinker. You drank around the clock. Around the clock. That's wow. a hard life. It, is a, it was a really hard life. How long was it like that? About a year and a half. Oh, wow. Well, that's not true. It started a year and a half and progressed to that point, you know, because I've been drinking since I was 14. But it really got this bad when I lost my job, uh, not because of drinking, but because of downsizing. And then the company eventually closed. But it gave me an opportunity to drink all the time. Mm. Um, Were you you living alone? No, actually, I was married to someone who drank like I did. Mm -hmm. And then we had two children at home, his and mine. And mine eventually went to go live with her dad because she couldn't be around the chaos that both he and I created. Get me away from here. Yes. And her leaving, you know, all it did for me was make one less person point out how much I was drinking. I, I didn't 
as a mother, I did not care that she left. That's wow. what alcohol did for, to me, not for me, to me. I, I understand. I was, I often thought if my wife kicked me out, well, good. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, <clears throat> then I wouldn't have her complaining about my drinking, you know, <laughs> or exactly. trying to limit me in. I didn't have that. Uh, my my, uh, my spouse at the time, um, partner, whatever you want to call him at the time, um, was my drinking buddy. And so it was actually him that was about, well, actually, it was me who was going to leave. I was going to rent my house to him and move into Greensboro because I had quit drinking for about eight months and he had kept on. And then he quit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that same thing happened with me. But the man that I was married to at the time drank like I did, but he eventually... Actually, he eventually started marking my wine bottles to monitor how to try to control how much I was drinking. Oh, and so you know, of course, what I did was I had alcohol hidden all over the house. So when I would drink down to to where he said I should drink down to, and then I would just go into another room in the house and find that bottle. But he, I was sober two. The first two years I was sober, he was still drinking and drugging. Wow! So you know, so an alcoholic can't control their drinking. <laughs> you know what? No one else can control an alcoholic's drinking either. No, there's no controlling it. <laughs> but we can try. Yeah, and and thankfully there's Al-Anon for that. Yes. <laughs> what, what did you go to? Had you heard of AA and went to AA, or did you go to a treatment center, or how did you get to AA? I. Had heard of AA, but not any details. And I really didn't know what an alcoholic was. Like, I would say, I'm an alcoholic, but I really didn't know what that meant. I just mm. knew that I was drinking too much. Right. But um, what happened was my blood pressure got really bad because of all the drinking. And so they doubled my blood pressure medicine. Of course, I wasn't. I didn't tell the doctor I was drinking of course until <laughs> one morning at ten o'clock in the morning. I went in for a uh, checkup, a blood pressure checkup, and I was stumbling drunk. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, "I can't stop drinking." So first, he told me to cut back, which which I believed because he's a doctor, mm-hmm. and he he didn't know any different. And I well, it's reasonable yeah, first thing yeah, to try. <laughs> cut back. Um, so of course I tried to cut back. I couldn't cut back. So then I felt like more of a failure. Like I can't even do this. So I called him and told him I couldn't. And he suggested fellowship hall. Oh, good. Can I say that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a a local treatment center. Yes. Yes. Um, so I was, I was going to say something about, and that's why we need CPC cooperation Mm -hmm. with the professional community is because a doctor will tell you to cut back, but he followed through with, all right, cutting back didn't work. You need help. Right. Right. So that's great. Kudos to him. Yeah. Which is one definition of what an alcoholic is, is someone who is unable to control their drinking. Exactly. And the only way I discovered that was by trying to control it and failing and failing and failing. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it was like, look, I, I can't do it. Somebody tell me what to do. Right. Right. I did not realize that there was a solution. Mm-hmm. I thought that I was just going to live this way and die this way. Isn't it curious how as much, well, I got sober in 94 and even then once I got sober, I began hearing about AA and treatment centers and recovery all over the place in the media. But before that, I never heard it at all. 
Well, I mean, part of that's kind of like buying a new car. You know, then you see everybody else who's got the same car. You know, there, there, yeah. there is some awareness that mm-hmm. kicks in. And there is, if I saw any mention of anything like that, I would turn away. Oh, really? Yes. A threat to your drinking? It was just a wee bit. (laughs) Boy whistling in the darkness. (laughs) I'm trying to remember this guy who was big in recovery. He was doing a program, and he was kind of selling himself, but he obviously had been a... Anyway, that he had a series on television that my wife was watching, and I was like, Ugh, I, "I'm not watching that guy. That guy's yeah. an asshole." <laughs> I mean, I, I was just, <laughs> I just completely went. He's an asshole. I have no idea whether he was or not, but <laughs> that, it was a little bit of defensiveness there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. will cut you. I'll cut you. <laughs> I will cut you. <laughs> I want that as a ringtone. <laughs> So, you know, it, 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 speaking of TV and stuff, there was a movie that was on while I was recovering from a drinking b- bout that uh, had a meeting going on in a church in like New York City or something like that. And the guy, I think it may have been Judd Nelson was the actor, leaves the meeting and walks down the street to the, uh, the little convenience store to buy alcohol and buys it and walks out. And I, and I can't remember if he drank it or not. And I think he did not and then went back into the meeting. But that movie was on, and I knew where a meeting was in Greensboro. And I went to it. Wow. So media does have an, a place for us. Mm-hmm. It, it does <clears throat> pay attention to it. So what's another definition of what is an alcoholic besides inability to control my drinking? Well, one of the ones I like is the inability to predict what's going to happen. You know, I if I drink, it may be a fantastic night. I might have just a couple, and I might behave myself and have a wonderful time. I might just get plastered and still have a wonderful time. I might even remember it. Or I might get plastered, and who knows the hell what's going to happen. My clothes will probably wind up flying off of me, because that happened a lot. Um, My glasses flew off of me. Well, That doesn't sound like as much fun. It, yeah, it wasn't, it, nearly as much. wasn't as dramatic, but it was more expensive. But his glasses flew off every time my clothes flew off. <laughs> that, that's the case. I'm blind! Uh, um, but so, so, yeah, the, the unpredictability mm-hmm. of what's going to happen if I take a drink. Is it going to be a nice, normal social event, or is it going to be Sam getting plastered and, and the train going off the rails again? Yeah. I remember the, um, and I didn't know it was called a blackout when I was drinking, but I, I thought everybody woke up and didn't know what Me happened too. the night before. Me too. I really did. Because <laughs> yes. it happened in college. My roommate, we, we would lie in bed like the day after, and like bits and pieces of memories would come to us, and we'd go, no. No. <laughs> we called them no attacks because we were gradually remembering what had happened the night before. Oh, wow. But there towards the end of my drinking, um, I would wake up in the morning or wake up, period, because I didn't always wake up in the morning or come to. And I wouldn't say anything until my husband or my child spoke to me because that was a clue as to whether or not I had... You're upset in them the, yeah. yeah, upset them the night before or done something I shouldn't or, and I really was 
on pins and needles mm. till one of them spoke to me. That's awful. Because I, I didn't you. know what I had done. So what was it? What was it like going to AA? Did you resist it, or did no. were you at the very bottom and was like, okay, I'll do anything you say. I'll gargle peanut butter upside down. <laughs> I've never had. Smooth I hear that crunchy. all the time, but. Um, Thank, I've never had a sponsor actually <laughs> say that. I had one, I, I had actually my sponsor's spouse um, said something about pushing a grape up a hill with your nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's like recovery's yeah. a lot. No, more I'm fun. not willing yeah, to do that. Yeah. Recovery's yeah. a lot more fun than that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I was very willing because, like I said, I didn't know that there was a solution. I thought I was going to live the rest of my life or die. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. way I had been living. And so when I um, called Fellowship Hall to make an appointment, they said they didn't have anything for about three weeks. And I said, oh, my gosh. And they said, go ahead and drink. That's what you're going to do. You know, we'll call you when we have a room. So I said, well, can I come in and get a tour? Because I thought if I got a tour, then it would make it more real. I was scared mm-hmm. that if I waited three weeks and waited for them to call me, that I wouldn't go. So I got my go cup. Got in the car. My husband drove me, and I got a tour. When I walked in, they said, oh, my gosh, Vicki, I wish we'd had your phone number. We have a bed. And my brain goes, oh, hell no. You told me I had three, three weeks. more weeks to drink. <laughs> so did you check I in went. that day? I went. All right. I wow. did. But I said, I mean, my brain's working. There's a half a bottle at home. And my brain said to them, what time do I have to be here? They said, well, your husband can go get your stuff. I said, no, I'm going to go with him because I'm thinking about the wine in the refrigerator. Yeah. So I go with him. And on the oh, way home, they let, yeah, they let me go. Oh, my God. On the way home, I'm thinking that half a bottle isn't going to be enough. So I get another bottle. So hour round trip, an hour, an hour, a bottle and a half more later, I check in. But wow. I was willing. I was so scared to continue living like I'd been living and and when I walked into to the treatment center people were laughing and that was so foreign to me like I could not remember I'm gonna cry thinking about it could not remember the last time I'd laughed Mm -hmm. so I was willing and especially in a place where people like us are going exactly to, to you know stop drinking stop using whatever and they're laughing yeah yeah, that was powerful. It's yeah. like the the end of my life, the end of all fun. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. willing to do this, but I know that it's going to be one long gray day for the rest of my days. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then go to a meeting and people are laughing, mm-hmm. joking around, and it's like, what is going on with these people? Yeah. It was very attractive. Mm-hmm. It really was. And you know what's funny is... The fun, the conversations, the the playfulness that I have with my friends in the rooms is something that, as a drunk, I would have like turned my nose up against, and you know, all all that's just stupid, mm-hmm. and how lame is that, and all that kind of stuff. Yet, when I honestly look at who I was when I was drunk, I was boring as hell. I mean. Ab- horribly, horribly boring. At one point, I set up a video camera in the kitchen where we were drinking at home because that's what we did. I set up a video camera 
Because I wanted to know what do we what do we do? <laughs> you're blacking out. I can't remember what you're doing. Oh my Need God! I mean, I watched the thing on fast forward. The funniest thing was me trying to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> um, seriously. Other than that, it was just boredom. It was so boring. It is boring, especially when all I was thinking about was where was I going to get my yeah. next drink? Did I have enough to drink? You know. And the persistence of the idea that. This, well, the thing is, is that alcohol is a solution that worked for a long, long time for me. And it quit working for a long time. But I was still holding on to the idea that it was still working and that it was making me happy. Though, like you said, there was no laughter. And one thing that happened to me after about three weeks sober, as I was taking a shower in the morning, and I started singing in the shower, which is something I've always done, but hadn't done for years. And it was like some kind of joy was coming back. This kind of spontaneous mm-hmm. joy was coming back. That the alcohol was killing, yet it was my idea that there was going to be no more fun anymore. Mm-hmm. What was something that happened early on in recovery that was pivotal Well, I mean, it happened like almost right away when I would actually wake up instead of come to and didn't want a drink because I had spent so many months doing nothing but drinking because I wanted, I needed that drink. Mm -hmm. And when I woke up and didn't need that drink, to me, it's still a miracle. It still amazes me that I, just for today, don't want to drink. Well, how did that happen? Did they give you some drug or something? They did give me <laughs> detox drugs, but for only five days. And, oh, I know what was incredibly pivotal. When I learned that alcoholism was a disease and that I was not a bad person trying to get good, that I was actually sick with a disease that needed to be arrested that and I remember looking around thinking is everybody else buying into this because I thought it was a cult because it made so much sense like at first I thought well maybe they're telling me this just to make me feel better but it made you hooked yeah it made everything make sense though it made the fact that I kept drinking after my daughter left it made that make sense Mm -hmm. you know I was not a bad mother yeah you know I was just sick and it helped with the, the internal shame. Yes. You yes. know, th- th- that you sit here and say, you know, that it just made sense. And I had to check with other people, look around, because it, like, made too much sense. It, yeah. It was like, this, something's wrong here because yeah. this is fitting too well. Yeah. Um, that aligns with uh, what I've heard so many other people and what my experience has been with the big book. Reading that book, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, that's it's got me in it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the one of two books that I have read that. Oh my God, that's me. oh no, that's that's me too. What that's me too. Mm-hmm. I mean, throughout what it's talk, what it's saying, is describing me. The other book was the Introvert Advantage, but that's not AA. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was possibly I am a bunny. <laughs> I will cut you. I live in a hollow tree. 
Are you an owl? <laughs> <laughs> Some say Watch so. Watch out, bunny. Here comes the owl. <laughs> no, we're not drunk. The, uh, <laughs> we're laughing. I, yeah. was, I was at a, um, a discussion meeting early on, and they wanted a topic, and everyone was sitting in silence, and I was new, and I had a question, but I was scared to ask, so I finally did. I said, well, how do you deal with the shame of being an alcoholic? And the whole room burst into laughter. And this is one odd group of people. I kind of figured you were going to ask something about a bunny. (laughs) No. (laughs) They were laughing at shame. Yeah. And one guy really got to me. And I think it's when I really accepted the disease. He said, there is no shame in being an alcoholic. There's shame in some of our behavior. But alcoholism itself, the failure to be able to control my drinking, that's what alcoholism is. And no amount of control is going to do it. So you can let go of that. I, I, I could not make me not be an alcoholic just like I can't change my eye color. Right. It for me, mm-hmm. it's who it's it's part of my makeup that if I drink alcohol, who knows where it's going. That's I can't right. I can't change yeah. that. So yeah, there's there's nothing there to be shameful. But the thing is that you know shame is such an easy thing for an alcoholic, but a lot of us in general to carry. I mean, I had shame for all kinds of stuff growing up as a kid and growing up a gay, gay kid in the South, in the Bible Belt. Hell yeah, I know shame. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was easy to carry around with this thing too. Well, I had shame for the things I did that were wrong. I had shame for things that I didn't do that other people were judging me mm-hmm. that were wrong. And I had shame for my failure. Well, I had shame for my failure to be able to control myself. And that's when I was drinking and I could not control myself. Well, that, and that's holding ourselves to a standard that misinformed that I thought that I should be holding myself to. Yeah. So that's another definition of alcoholism. What's one of the steps, Vicki, that was important to you or that was different when you did it than you thought it was going to be approaching it? Okay. Step two, where I came to believe. I grew up in the church. I'd been going to the same church for 35 years. In treatment, when they told me I was spiritually bankrupt, I told them they were wrong. I said, I have been going to church for 35 years. I teach Sunday school. Drunk, but I still taught (laughs) Sunday school. I did that as well. Um, it might and, have been a fun class. <laughs> <laughs> My class was really fun. <laughs> well, I had seven, eight-year-old boys. Well, I, I, I had girls. So when I taught boys, I, it was just an excuse to drink, you know, because I could, I didn't know how to deal with boys. They, they behave differently. <laughs> They'll make you drink. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, you know, so do, so do grapes, you know, so do grapes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> everything right. makes me drink. That's true. Um, so when I went into the second step, I didn't think that there was anything there for me. What church okay. did you grow up in? Methodist uh-huh. mm-hmm. here in town. Well. Yeah. And loved everything about it. It was really progressive. You know, women were in leadership. We had, we had gay membership. It was really progressive. Loved it. That's a different Methodist church than the one oh, okay. I grew up yeah. in. 
Which I left because, uh, because they were not progressive. Right. So I didn't think step two had anything to offer me. And I don't know when it happened. I had the educational approach to connecting with my higher power. It happened over time. I don't know that it happened specifically in step two, but step two got me thinking about it. But I did not know I didn't have a relationship with a higher power until I got it. You thought you did. I thought I had one. Did not know I didn't have it until I got it. You know, in looking back, and step two was probably pivotal in that because it got me thinking about a relationship. I realized that I got to know the God of my understanding in the same way that I would get to know you as a friend where we meet and we kind of talk a little bit. So I would start praying. And, of course, it was in the beginning it was stilted because I didn't have alcohol as a lubricant. Mm -hmm. Um, So my conversations with God were stilted, but I still did it. Over time it became easier to do. I guess with where you were coming from, you didn't didn't struggle with the whole idea of doing it. No, did not struggle with God or prayer. Yeah. Um, Now, my prayers were different. Like I would start, hey, God, it's Vicki. Instead of like the prayers that I learned in church, dear Heavenly Father, um, it was a little bit more laid back, more personal. Became yours, yeah, exactly. You know, and over time, I learned to trust that I learned to believe. First, I learned to believe that God had my back, and I learned that by looking in in my past and Mm -hmm. see where He had been all along, so that I could see He was with me right now. And then I learned to trust that He would be with me in the future. So I guess that's faith. But it was all a process. But I think step two is pivotal in that. Whereas, like I said, when I went into it, I thought I had step two. Uh, I heard someone say that she was talking with her sponsor about step two, and her sponsor asked her about, do, do you believe in God? She said, oh, absolutely. I pray every day. And, she said, and her sponsor said, oh, well, then all you have then is a relationship problem. We can work on that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about making amends? Did you have any experiences oh, making yeah. amends that were interesting? Interesting, or yes. Change, yes. life changing. Life changing. Okay, so I had because the, the reason I ask about that amends were what I was the most afraid of. Mm. That's mm. what what I really didn't want to do. And we talked earlier about shame, and I had shame. I had shame for stuff that I should be ashamed of. Mm. Right. You know? Right. Right. It's like my grand when my grandmother said, "You should be ashamed." You were ashamed if she said mm-hmm. that. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but usually, you did something wrong to be ashamed of. And if I want to remove my shame, then I need to live in a different way mm-hmm. that's not shameful. And when I took out the alcohol, I began to be able to do that. But how am I going to deal with all this? things that I did in the past, that's with making amends. Right. And uh, I was I was really afraid of it, but that was the real gold in AA. Mm-hmm. When I made amends, that's when I really began to have freedom. Mm-hmm. So go the, ahead. The one that is always part of my story is the amends that I made with that daughter that left home. Mm-hmm. She did not accept it. You know, I was I was taught to say, what can I do to make it right? You know, I talked to her about the things that I had that I had done, the things that I had not done. You know? how, how did you prepare for this? Um, in talking with my sponsor. 
Mm-hmm. I sure did because I wanted to know how much detail to go in because I didn't want I didn't want to relive all of those things. I certainly didn't want them to bring bring them back up into her life mm-hmm. if it was going to cause her pain. Mm-hmm. So that business of not harming right. someone else to make us feel better. Exactly. Make us better. Yeah. Exactly. So and of course I prayed before I did it. Absolutely asked God to guide my words and show me what it was that she needed. So when I was talking to her, I talked to her, and and she just got more angry and more angry and more angry. And, you know, I was taught to say at the end, is there anything I can do to make this right? Or what can I do to make this right? And she took a picture off the wall, threw it at me, and said, you can never make this right. You can't give me back the first 13 years of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I told her I loved her and that I was going to be a better mother. That's what I was doing in AA. I was learning to be a better person. And I stayed really close to my sponsor. And then and my daughter was still living with her dad. That must have been really upsetting. It was tore my heart out. Tore my heart out. Because I did that. You know, I I did that to her. Um so I stayed close to my sponsor and I just continued working the steps and living the life and changing me getting better. And I just, I learned to be a better mom bit by bit from the women in the rooms, from, from my higher power, from my sponsor. What happened was in the beginning, probably for the first year, I allowed her to speak to me in a, in an unhealthy way because she was used to mistreating me because that's what she did when I was drinking. And I allowed her to do that because I felt like I deserved it. And then as I got healthier, I started setting those boundaries. And that's also part of being a better mother, is actually being a mother. Mm. So she was kind of distant. She eventually came back to live with me, but there was still some underlying anger, a lot of underlying anger, and um, a lot of some tiptoeing on my part, tiptoeing on her part. And then she ran into my ex-husband, who was essentially homeless. She ran into him down on Tate Street, and he was also part of, you know, hurting her and, and causing her harm. And what happened was something flipped inside of her, and she felt compassion for him. And she came home, and she was mad. She goes, I'm mad because I feel bad for him. She wanted to still be angry. So we started talking about that, and it opened up again what I had done the harm that I had caused. We talked through it. She accepted my amends. And, you know, we're taught not to say I'm sorry. But at the end, I said, so are we, are we good? Are we okay? And she goes, no. I said, I'm thinking, what? What else? And she goes, you never told me you were sorry. And that's what she wanted to hear. And the pivotal thing about that is that was eight years later. Wow. Eight years. Eight years. And it took her another year to be able to tell me that she loves me. And now we are best friends. Oh. Yeah, best friends. She will tell anybody I'm the nicest person she's ever met. She says that I'm dependable, that I'm solution. Those are her words. She said, you're solution-oriented, Mom. I mean, it's everything I could ever want. I've got chills listening <laughs> to you talk about this. Um, yeah, I mean, that... That's the amazing thing is that in in so many of these situations, relationships, we can't fix what happened. Right. But what we can do is be a better person in that relationship going forward. Mm -hmm. Relationships can heal. 
in this program. It's they happen all the time. Such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's. I'm so glad yeah. I got to hear that. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, that's great. It's incredible how lives can change in recovery mm-hmm. by working the steps. Mm-hmm. Real change. What's so? What's your routine like now? How do you stay sober? How do I stay sober? Okay, we'll start with getting up in the morning and getting on my knees and praying. And what I ask God for is to um, open my heart and mind so that I can receive whatever it is He wants to tell me that day. And and I I ask Him to get me out of the way. And um, oh, I love that. Yeah, I used to think in terms of I need to envision the future and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And now I am ask God for guidance and I'm available to the day. Hmm. Yeah, I like and, that. And then try to be constructive and proactive in the day to what's put in front of me. And not be mean and bullying and picking on people because of the shirts they wear. And yeah, things like that. Yeah. Things yeah. Like that. yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> and I also um, ask God if it's his will to put someone in my path that I can help. And then throughout the day, I talk to God all day long. Yeah. I talk to him at work. I'm a director, so I have people under me, and there are uncomfortable conversations that I have to have. And and but I look at them as opportunities to teach. These people have no idea. I throw the program at them all day long. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they have no idea. And then, um, of course, I go to meetings. I sponsor. Of I course, sponsor you go to women. meetings. Of course, how many, I go to meetings. How many meetings do you go to? I go to two, uh-huh. maybe three. Uh huh. But definitely two. Uh, a month, a week, a week. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, a week. And you have sponsees. I have sponsees. I have six right now, and one of them lives in Thailand. Oh wow! Yeah, we do that all over the internet. That's cool. Yeah, I'm co-sponsoring her with my sponsor. Mm-hmm. Then, so I'm working with sponsees all throughout the week. You you said that you're so you're talking to God throughout the day. You're talking about what? conscious contact. Cons- that, that that's an incredible resource that I I did that recently when my father-in-law died last Thursday. He died at home and hospice was there. And it was both beautiful and really not a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. The whole family was there. So my wife and I left to get some supper. We got a telephone call that he died while we were gone, so we turned around and went back. And as we were walking down the hall to go up there, and in fact, even on the drive over, I was going, I, uh, I don't want to go. It's, I don't want to see him, the body. And I was uh, fearful. And I guess naturally enough, I don't know, but it was like, but I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be here for my wife. And so, you know, I did what I've learned to do in the program, and that was ask God for help. Show me where I can be helpful. The first time that happened was when I had a sponsee. I was sober about two years, and I had a sponsee who's had a grandmother die, and so I needed to be there at the funeral for him. I didn't know his family or anyone involved with it, but I told him I wanted to be there to support him. And I parked in the parking lot, 
And I was going, I don't want to go in there. I don't, I don't do it. And I said, oh, we ask God for direction when we don't know what to do. It's, it's, it's in the book. So I, I said a prayer, show me what to do. Show me how to be helpful. And I went in with that spirit. Instead of going in with, I need to go in and be a wise sponsor you know, or, <laughs> or something like that. And I, I was able to do that. I stood there. I got him a, a glass of water he needed. I said, what do you need? He said, I, I need some water. He was having to stand in this long line. I went and got him water and was helpful. It's, so it's what I've learned to do, and it works. But it's kind of like my old self was like, what? This idea of depending on God, asking for God for help because you are anxious or have to do something you don't want to do. But, you know, I was not available in situations in the past, like when my grandmother died, I went and visited her one time in the hospital as she was sick and dying, and it was that was the only time I went there. I after that, mm-hmm. I went to the bar, and I stayed at the <clears throat> bar. And anytime I had those feelings about her, I would get I would drink, and I I wanted to be there for her, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't find a way to do it, and now I can do things that seem insurmountable mm-hmm. by asking God for help, taking the next four step forward. Mm-hmm. I like how um, sobriety has afforded me the ability to be present, you know, to, to be present for people in their lives, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom died in February, and for the last five years, she's she was battling Alzheimer's, and so I was able to be present And I originally did it for my father because my mother and I didn't have a really good relationship, but I wanted to help him out. And I came to adore her, adore her. What a gift. And um, when she became bedridden and lived at home, I was able to be there with her. She knew who I was, and I was able to be there with her, and I was with her when she took her last breath. Mm -hmm. So I was so grateful to be present because I would have been drinking. I wouldn't have been able to face that. Um, for sure. And now I can be present for my dad, you know, while he's grieving. Mm-hmm. And and I throw the program at him a lot, too. And, and one time he looked at me and goes, you know, I'm just not where you are. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something we have to accept. Yeah, that's a tough thing to yeah, accept Yeah, and I sometimes. have to be careful. I have to be careful because I think I was overdoing it. Mm-hmm moderation but um i mean i'm sitting over here this spiritual gas giant and (laughs) oh there's don (laughs) it it really is one of those things of letting people be where they are Mm -hmm. that's a tough spot Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so but but i'm grateful to be present just it's it's a gift it's another gift of sobriety you can't talk to people who are not in the program the same way as you talk to people in the program. Oh, sure you can. They just don't get it. They don't yeah. get it. You say, I, <laughs> I detect a little resentment. They're going, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'll cut <can't> you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but another thing that's really big in my um, sobriety is service work, is is helping others and, you know, sponsoring is is part of service work. But, you know, AA doesn't run itself there, the meetings don't run themselves. You know, I have an opportunity to volunteer in my home group to chair it or set it up or to be a greeter. 
I can be a GSR, you know, which leads me to the next level of, you know, service work, which is at the district level. And then it's just, I, I, can't, I got on fire for AA when I went to an assembly, you know, as a GSR, on fire. It, was a, it, it took my sobriety to a different level. To a different wow, that level. we had a the question last week or a week before was should I go to an assembly? Sure was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, when I went the first time I didn't understand what was going on at all, but the energy. The feeling of yes, it, the spirit exactly. in the room. Yes. Is tangible. And yes. one of the things that I love about an assembly, I, so, so you know that I, I travel a lot for conferences and I really enjoy going to conferences and they, and mm-hmm. whenever it's repeats, especially it's become more like a reunion or something like that. Um, and then there's panels and workshops and I, I can nerd out on it. But when it comes to an assembly, that's kind of like putting me in the kitchen at a party. I, lo- I that's where I gravitate mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. I want. Wait, what's the difference between an assembly and a conference? What so okay, saying? so a conference is is tip is sometimes it's AA, but often it's recovery. It's not an AA event, um, but it's people in recovery coming together for a weekend of on a topic or on a, something. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, to, and often they're annual and things like mm-hmm. that. But an assembly is. To, to make it simple, for it's the state of North Carolina's mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous administrative weekend where we get together to do some of the admin work, where representatives of groups and districts come to a single location, and we do the work. So that makes helping you... Helping make sure AA is here in North Carolina. So that makes you feel like you're in the kitchen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's work mm-hmm. to do. And and we're all there for a common reason Who will of help making me this bake happen. this pie. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Four and twenty blackbirds. Yeah. <laughs> Four and twenty owls that need to be boiled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was just perfect. <laughs> You're welcome, Don. <laughs> That's going to be our segue to the question for the old timer. It's time for our old timer's question. Who are you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. <laughs> well, no matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time, isn't it, laddie? Oh, so we brought back a little bit of Ireland. Yes, it's still got a little bit of the green on me. <laughs> oh, no ma- Oh, that's your line. <laughs> no matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time, right, old timer? That's right, lady. <laughs> if you want to ask a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. Um, we have a question here from Alex in Brighton. I'm afraid of losing the urgency of recovery. How can I avoid complacency? Wow, that's serious. Because uh, that that's the way to get drunk again, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you're how many years away from your last drink? Now I can't remember. It's 20-something. Um, 24, 26, 26, 26. So 26 years. Oh, for crying out loud, it's 24 years. That's a lot of time between that urgency of that last drink. That's right. Yeah. When I first came in, there was a guy who had five months sobriety. 
And that guy was like, okay, he understands what I'm going through. Yeah. <laughs> and I really identified with that guy with five months. And, and people that had two years, like my sponsor had two years at the time. And it was like, he was like a, a gas giant. I mean, a spiritual giant. But what happens, I think it's, it's what Vicky was talking about. It's being involved in AA. It's a daily part of my life. I need to continue to go to meetings to keep it green so that I can remember what it was like. When somebody new comes in and starts sharing what they're, the destruction of their life that they're stepping out of, and it's what they're not even stepping out of it. Their life is destroyed. And they're still in it at that moment. And they're mm-hmm. still in it at the moment. And it's not funny. And they cannot see a way out. And to be able to say, well, here's what I did. And I remember what it was like. I remember exactly what that, that guy's feeling. Because it's what the way I felt. So that keeps it green. And the way I get that is by continuing to go to meetings and working with other people. Thank you, old timer. Mm. I mean, yeah, old timer. <laughs> I guess instead of old timer, perhaps we could use long timer, Sam. Long in the toother? <laughs> or middle aged. Middle-aged timer. Well, frankly, with the amount of sobriety that you've experienced, like down in, what was it, in Jupiter? Yeah. uh, You are middle-aged. Yeah. Well, at the meetings I was going to there, it's definitely a a middle-timer. Yeah. It's all relative. It's still one day at a time, laddie. (laughs) What about you, Vicki? Well, um, like you said, the newcomer is the one that helps me keep it urgent. Um, I... I also take, um, every other week, I take a meeting to um, a local jail and work with the women in the jail. And I've never been in jail. So I use, we use the topics that we talk about to help them understand, to help them know that they're not alone, but I use my feelings. I talk about how it felt when I was new in recovery, not how it felt when I was sitting in a chair in jail, because I don't have that experience, right. but I, or, or we can still help them because we understand what it's like to be newly sober. Mm-hmm. So I remember I went last week and we had a rowdy crowd. Like we had five of the 10 people that had never been to a meeting before. So we have to really think about what it was like when we were brand new. So that helps me keep it green because I've got to remember that gut level pain that I was in to be able to share it with them so that they can identify. Because one of the first questions they ask is, have you, have you ever been in jail? Yeah. Right. You know, how do you know what, what I'm feeling? Because you've never been where I've been. And I'm going, well, yeah, I have. Let me tell you about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's on an emotional level. Oh, yeah. What it is. Yeah. Well, you know, that's one of the things that was coming to mind for me while, while Don was talking about, you know, I mean, I know that my story has changed a little over the years of what my drinking was like. The drinking, the war stories, the drunkalogue, mm-hmm. the facts, you know, how many, how many times were you, how many bees stung you, Don? <laughs> the facts change, but the feelings are what are the same. And so whenever I'm telling my story, you know, I try to tell the truth, but, you know, memory, all that kind of stuff kicks in and and old age happens. Um, (laughs) Or um, kicks in or doesn't. Or doesn't, yeah, really. Um, But the feelings, 
are absolutely. And the thing is, is that when I do encounter the newcomers in these rooms, the folks who who may or may not stick around, mm-hmm. even those feelings help me keep that urgency. That's that re- that reminder of what it was like. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that complacency. So that's a feeling. I'm just thinking about it. You know, something else that I do that has always served me is, is having a home group and I am required to show up at my home group and I don't get to say, well, I'm feeling really good. And so I don't really need a meeting. So I don't need to go tonight because, you know, I have other things to do and I'm going to skip it. Nope. On my home group, I have to be there. That's the one meeting mm-hmm. that I absolutely have to attend. And that protects me from complacency because when I get there, then I identify and then I remember why I'm here. I'm able to help someone else. So I've got to show up. And that commitment, mm-hmm. I think, is a good protection against the feeling of complacency. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing for me about uh, keeping the, uh, the sense of urgency but avoiding complacency is working actively working with a sponsor because that's what I didn't do. You know, that part of my story where I worked the steps with a sponsor and then didn't work the steps with any subsequent sponsor wound up doing things my way and started over because of poppers and diet pills, you know, bad ideas sounded good. And so I did stuff that I is not aligned with my definition of sobriety for me. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, having started over six years ago, I have worked with one, two, three, I'm on my fourth sponsor in the, in that time frame, and I just did my fifth step with with my current sponsor, actively working this mm-hmm. program with each one of them. I've worked the steps. That is a, a way that I avoid complacency in this too, because the thing that hits me with complacency is that's when I'll start working it my way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got any thoughts? You look like you had one a moment ago. It's something you wanted to share. Well, I don't, I think the way for me, when I guard against complacency, I don't know what part of what I'm doing is keeping me sober. So I'm not going to stop any of it. That's you know, right. whether it's the prayer or going to meetings or doing service work in my home group or doing service work out in the community or listening to fist steps at the hall or, you know, any and everything that I do. I don't know what part of it's keeping me sober. You mean those things that we did in early recovery that helped us get and stay sober mm-hmm. then will help us stay sober yes. today? Yes. What helped me get sober, I believe, will keep me sober if but I keep you know, doing there's it. A, there's a feeling the longer that you've been sober of, well, maybe I can cut back. And in truth, I I can cut back to a certain extent. I don't go every day of the week. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I really needed to go every day. In fact, I went twice a day in the early months. So I've played with that a lot the whole time I've been sober and I've backed off on my morning prayer. I've quit doing morning prayer for a period of time. I I struggled a whole lot in my recovery with morning prayer and meditation, forgetting to do it going long periods of time and not doing it. But what happens is if I do it, my life's better. Mm-hmm. And so I'll cut back on things. It's like, a, what is it that Doug says? Uh, just cut back on meetings till you drink. Like how many? One. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cut one. back on meetings until you drink and then add one. 
I don't want to get I don't want to get to the place where I'm drinking, but I've played with it a lot. Well, and I mean, I've discovered that it takes all the parts. Mm-hmm. If I do all the parts, then then my life is better. My life is rich, and I'm happy. I'm not dissatisfied in my life. And who wants? I mean, that is a solution for living. This isn't a solution for just drinking. It's not about mm-hmm. drinking. This is about living. How am I going to live my life and and have my life be meaningful? Because that's one thing. I remember when I was a teenager sitting on the bed in the morning before school going, this overwhelming feeling of meaninglessness. Nothing means anything. And that's something that has been in me from before I started drinking. And I don't have that feeling when I'm involved and in the middle of AA because I'm mm-hmm. helping people. And where's the meaning is being of service to other people, mm-hmm. being able to be there for my family when my father-in-law died. That's, I would, I don't want to trade that for anything. So I can't be complacent when I'm getting so much from it. I need all the parts. But as you just were talking about, there are times with it you haven't done some of these parts. And that's totally my experience mm-hmm. is there are times I wax and wane on what it is I'm doing, whether it's going to X meetings a, a week or, or praying in the morning or, you know, whatever it is. Meditating is a big one for me. I mean, I'll pick that up and put it right back down. You notice I didn't um, mention that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here's the thing that I have all these tools in this in this spiritual toolkit and i have never even when i started over i have or before i started over i have never put them all down so as right. long as i'm picking up some of these tools and using them i'm pretty sure i'm going to be okay now it might not be puppies and unicorns I will cut you. Uh, but it might be mean unicorns. Mean, yeah, mean unicorns. But there are some things that if I do it, if I, I leave it put down, leave it sitting on the table for too long, that's when things can can go awry. And that's what happened with me. Yeah, I didn't work the steps someone else's way. I wasn't working those, and that was over a series of several sponsors. So I put down a tool and I left it down too long. Mm-hmm. But when I can pick them all up, yeah, I do have an awesome day. It takes all the parts. I, yeah. I just love what you said, Vicky. It takes all the parts to stay sober. It does. Well, it doesn't take all the parts necessarily to stay sober. It takes all the parts to be happy. To be happy. Yeah. I was just yes. going to say, yeah. I heard in early recovery, an old time, he was an old timer. He goes, you are as physically sober as you're going to be. He said, everything else you do is working on your emotional sobriety which is my happiness, which is my inner joy, you know, which is, which are my smiles. You know, I'm physically sober, but, but I need the other stuff to, to live happily. It's my not cussing out that slow driver. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah. 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 Well, I could look at myself and say, gosh, Vicki, you should have left sooner. Yeah. Yeah, Sam, you should leave sooner. (sighs) Don't tell me what to do. You should leave sooner. (laughs) I'll cut you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's just a suggestion. Yeah. Uh-huh. Vicky, thanks for joining us today. 
<laughs> it was Thanks so much indeed. fun. Thank you. Oh, wow. Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Six seconds of silence. It's all about you, Don. And I'm going and see. This is why I'm saying it because he can't control himself. He's like a little child, and evidently you are too. I can't. So, well, we, and we feed I off of each other too. So, so I've got to have it so that we have a, a good got to have it because you know sound. it's all about Don. So quiet, quiet. I must have silence. I'm going to cut you. (laughs) Y'all are awesome.